Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding pretty far back, guys. We are going back to September the 28th, in 2011. So that's eight years of the Survival Podcast. Uh, this was originally episode 751, and it was really a, a great episode that I'm I realized today when I was looking for a rewind, I was like, man, I, I can't believe I've done over 100 rewinds today and uh, th that I hadn't actually rewound this show because this one was really, really paying on. And it resonated with an awful lot of people uh, in the audience. It also led to some future interviews um, with people like Jacob Lung Fisker of Early Retirement Extreme and some other stuff. But I wanted to tell you a few things today as we go into this that I thought would make the old and new again for you. Uh, number one, why is there a rewind today? Well, I, I miscalculated. I actually misnumbered the episode, not in the actual audio file, but in the title yesterday. And last week, I, I thought that episode 2500 would end up on a Wednesday if I didn't make any modifications. And I was sure of it. And then Monday morning yesterday, when I got together and did the show, I was like, wait a minute, it's going to land on Thursday, so I need to do one rewind, not two. Well, I was wrong, and, and, and a guy named Ken pointed out in the comments, when we thank you, Ken, that, hey, you, 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 you misnumbered the damn episode, and I wouldn't even say nothing normally, except it's going to screw things up for you. I was like, oh, yeah, well, you're right. Thanks, man. Um, so I fixed that. So I need to do two rewinds this week. And then I realized, like, doing Wednesday, Thursday rewinds, well, that's not going to work either. Why? Because I have Garrett Todd coming on Wednesday who, for our interview show, and we already have that booked, and it would just be rude and, and not right to, to defer that interview. I guess I could always have done the interview and not produce the show and deferred it until after 2,500. That doesn't seem right either. And it'll screw up our regularly scheduled program when we're soon back to it. So I thought we'll do two rewinds this week. And the reason I decided to do it that way is I actually put out a poll on Facebook and on MeWe, what do you guys want? And overwhelmingly, and I'm talking like 95% combined, it was either do whatever the hell you want, Jack. We don't really care. I'm going to listen anyway. Or, yeah, do it so it's on a Friday. So with that much overwhelming, it made it easy. So... You get two rewinds this week. So let's talk about this episode. Um, this is an episode that we haven't really dug into this topic in a long time. We've talked about bits and pieces of it here and there, but digging into it uh, fully and full on the way we do in this episode hadn't happened for a long time. This is a great rewind. So even if you're like, well, it's an old show, let me tell you, there might be a few temporal references in this show. I could have done this show today as a new show. And very little would change in it. I do have a couple things. I actually got to listen to this entire episode while doing some other work this morning so that I can give you some new commentary on it. And it's, it's weird how things work out. So this morning, and, and I'll confess to something, guys. Sometimes I actually talk uh, like I'm on air when no one's home, like when my wife goes to pick the kids up. It's called rehearsal. And like pros don't stop practicing or they stop being pros. Remember that, right? So I practice and I'm like, is this a good thing to talk about? And what had happened is something came up about VCRs and the blinking and the black tape and all. If you don't remember, if you're too young, we used to have VCRs where you put a big giant tape in there to watch a movie or you recorded a TV show on it and then you watch it on this big giant tape. It's about as big as a, bo a small book, right? And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Basically, how little Gen X, which is my generation, gives an F about things they're not interested in. And what I thought about was this. Check this out. And you'll, When I get to the part about VCRs in this episode, you'll see how this is really an interesting synchronicity. So I was thinking about how Gen X, we were kids, and there were three to five stations on the TV, depending on where you live, with rabbit ears or an outside aerial. I'm going to call that, that's what we used to call our antennas, we called them aerials, and because they were way up in the air, right? So there was no VCRs, Betamax was kind of a thing in the 70s, and it finally went to a VCR toward the late 70s, but basically there were no VCRs, 
Like, my rich uncle had a VCR in 1981. And it was huge. Like, you could beat somebody to death with it huge. And most of us didn't actually get VCRs in our homes until about 83, 84. So we were old enough to know, hey, this newfangled thing. And it came in, it was awesome. And we watched so much happen. We watched Blockbuster become one of the biggest companies in the world. We watched tons of little businesses for mom and pop, rental businesses. You go down the corner and you could rent movies. And usually the little ones, you couldn't get the newest movies, but you could get rentals for a dollar or a dollar fifty or something like that. And Blockbuster was four bucks, and they charge you like four bucks in late fees if you were late. And, and then eventually we watched the DVD player come in. And then we got those. And then we were pretty old by then, so we, we, we incentivized our kids, if we had kids yet, to actually figure out how to make copies of DVDs and so and break encryption. And we, maybe, you know, me in my case actually helped my son figure out how to do it because once he knew how to do it and he was all into it, I could just rent a DVD and hand it to him and then we'd have it for our DVD library. And we watched those all the way up until the advent of things like being able to buy movies on iTunes and Netflix going digital and to where, you know, DVDs are kind of dinosaurs now. And they're dinosaurs just like dinosaurs are like, you still got crocodiles and alligators and a few other weird things around, but the main, you know, day of the dinosaur is gone. And the VCR and the DVD player are no more. We saw the rise, the change, and the fall of all that. And where does the give, a, give an F factor come in with that? Most of us never bothered to learn how to set the damn clock on the VCR or the DVD player because we didn't care. We all wore watches back then. There were clocks all over the house. Our parents were yelling at us to be on time all the time anyway. We didn't need another clock. And if we ever did fix the damn thing so it wouldn't blink, we fixed it because our parents got on our ass because they couldn't figure it out. And we only did it because they made us. And we didn't even remember how to do it the next time because it wasn't important to us. That's how little we cared about things that we didn't care about, right? that we didn't find interesting. And I know you might be the weird kid that figured out how to do all the weird stuff with the VCR, but most of us didn't. We didn't care. It wasn't our parents that we made fun of for the black piece of tape that actually figured out the black piece of tape. We got tired of them bothering us, and we cared about that, so we figured out if we put the electrician tape over the number, they would leave us alone. Now, you might wonder what that has to do with common sense versus consumerism. The fact that I thought about that this morning, And then chose this episode, and since it's so long ago, I couldn't remember anything specifically about it. When you hear this segment about VCRs and product obsolescence in this episode, you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. Anyway, that was just my new intro for you. I do want to um, give you a couple other things about this. Uh, number one is that I mentioned toward the end of this episode um, a gal that's going to be on the next day, as in the next day back then. And uh, her name is Courtney, and she was one of the first people, her name is Courtney Clay, that I had on about homeschooling and unschooling. And I do have a link to that old episode. That was, of course, 752, again, about nine years ago, uh, in the, the additional resources for today's show. So uh, that is available on the website for Rewind number 114. And next up, I usually do no commercialism whatsoever in these shows. Um, but I do want to actually do a little bit today and remind you about doing your online shopping at T-Spaz. That's all I'll say about that. You guys know that by now. Um, but I actually have an item of the day out today. And this is such a great one, I don't want to leave it out today. So I'll throw it here at the beginning. It'll only take a minute or two at the most. Don't worry. It won't be a big commercial. But these are made by a company called Winomo. And they're double A to size D battery adapters. And they also make C to D adapt C to A adapters as well. And they where they work, they're like a, they almost look like a pill case that's designed to look like a battery, like you like a bottle. You pop the bottom open, you pop two double A's in it, you close it, and it then it basically is a D cell battery. It doesn't have the reserve capacity of a D-cell battery because it's two double A's. And it's actually four double A's. If you're putting three in a flashlight, it's six double A's. You got it. Two per cell. So why would you want this? Well, the main reason that I have them is that D and C batteries in the rechargeable form just are not good investments. They're not. And like most of you, thanks to Stephen Harris, I have double A and loop batteries, and I have the Power X Smart Charger. 
and I keep AA and AAA batteries in quantity, charged up all the time, and whenever any get used for anything, when they're done, they go back in the charger, they get charged up, and they get rotated into the already charged little... I have like a, basically a Tupperware thing for a, AA's and a Tupperware for single A, uh, AAA's. And that means that I have those. That means that if the power's out, like it went out this morning, it just happened to come back on before I got my ass out of bed to care about it and started firing up generators and stuff. It was only off for about 30 minutes. Um, but if it stays off and I need to use batteries, I have an, a, literally a limitless supply of double A's and triple A's. Because by the time the ones I'm using are dead, there's other ones charged. Between just an inverter in your car, uh, a car charger, things like that, you're good to go. And if you have a generator, I mean, you have endless double A AA and triple A. So why invest in something like rechargeable C's and D's when they're piss poor performers, right? So, you know, this whole show is about not buying what you don't need. You don't need these, but as cheap as they are for what they do, they are probably a good investment. And again, they're made by a company called Winomo. They're a double A size D battery adapter. I'm a huge fan of C and D cell mag lights, and my number one thing that I keep around the house for grabbing and going are D cell mag lights. I keep like one with the premium D cell batteries. It's like in a position if it needs to be used tactically. But I keep like I have like three of the damn things at this point on my windowsill out my back door. And honestly, all three of those now have these in them because the batteries are rechargeable. And so when one gets to where the light gets a little dimmer or whatever, I just bring it in. That I usually use them every night to take care of the ducks. I come in, I take the back off of them, I pop out the three cells, drop out the six batteries, drop them in my charger, take six fresh batteries, pop them in. And I haven't had to buy D-cells for those three flashlights for years. And, you know, they're not my tactical lights because I like the weight of the D-cells in there as much as I like the light itself. Because if you got to smack somebody, trust me, I won't tell you today, but... There is a story about me smacking somebody in the face with a D-cell-filled mag light, and it does exactly what you think it would do. It would work. So not as good for that, but for economic reasons, it makes a ton of sense. Again, a set of eight of them is only ten bucks. You might want to. And if you use a lot of C-cells, look at those, too. With that, let's go ahead now, rewinding back to uh, September 28, 2011, originally episode 751. Common sense versus consumerism. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. The Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Uh, today is Wednesday, September 28th, 2011, and this is episode 751, and today's episode is called Consumerism versus Common Sense, and it was inspired by a new book that I've read probably 10% of at this point, but uh, it got me thinking back to the way I've, you know, some of the things I really talked about a lot when I first started the show, way back in the days when I used to be in the car doing the show for the first 400-odd episodes, I talked a lot about making, you know, making smart decisions with our money and how important that would be going forward. And I think that that is actually more true now than it's ever been before. And uh, as I was reading this book, I, I, I'm actually very impressed with this book. Again, it's called Early Retirement Extreme, and it's not really a how-to-retire book. It's how-to-think-so-you-can-retire book, and uh, the guy retired in his 30s. And uh, I'm going to try to get him on the air. And like I said, I'm only 10% through with it, but as I'm reading it, I'm going, well, this guy must study permaculture. And, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just save that. There will be more on that in a bit. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. So um, what I want to start out with, again, is a little bit about this book. Uh, the book is called Early Retirement Extreme, and there's a website for it. I'll link to both today. I'm going to get in touch with the author about being on the show as a guest, but I'm going to finish this book first so I can do a really good interview with him and do a good job for him when I bring him on the show. But as I was reading it, there were a lot of things in it that, and in fact, this is actually kind of a, a kind of book that I don't generally like to read. I don't generally like to read a book where every time I read a sentence I go, well, I knew that, well, I knew that. I, it, it, it's kind of a boring thing for me at times uh, to read a book that doesn't bring me new information. Uh, where I'm just nodding my head along the whole way, especially, you know, not a fiction book, but a factual book. 
And uh, But as I'm reading this book, what I'm realizing is this is all stuff that I know pulled together and articulated differently than I would articulate it. Now, that's a book I actually like like to read because it lets me take my knowledge that I already have and combine it and extrapolate new things with it. And that's that's actually what I consider a very high-level written book. When you can write a book with material that a reader already basically knows and change, those, change the way they think about the knowledge they already have, I find that to be uh, quite a high-level intellectual achievement. So I like what the guy's doing. But a lot of the terminology in there is what I would consider permaculture technology uh, terminology. And the one that I saw that really hit me was a climax stage. And a climax stage in permaculture is different than what he's talking about, but the same. In permaculture, if we're building, a, we have a field. It's a vacant, destroyed field. And we might go in there and put a lot of annual plantings and herbs and things like that, but we'll bring in pioneering trees, and we'll start to push it toward a climax. And eventually, when we get into a climax stage, what we're going to have is the field is now going to be forest, and there's going to be food falling from the trees, and there's a world of abundance. But that very climax means that we've now, in a succession in time, uh, headed toward a de decline, that the forest must mature, and eventually some of the forest actually has to thin out so that a new, a new succession can begin, and that we can go through the same stage over and over again. And what he was saying is that our, our economy has reached a climax stage, meaning that our companies are now less innovating and less trying to come up with the next new product and more trying to capture existing market share. When I read that, as someone who consulted in marketing, and I'm going to tell you some things that you may not realize at all today about how companies develop products, how companies market products, how companies think, uh, that might shock you. Uh, you might be surprised at how predatory the design really is. And I don't think the people operating the design think of themselves as predators, but he was dead on. In, in your grandparents' day and age, when a company wanted to come out with a new product, they had to pretty much invent a new product. Um, you didn't just like, okay, well, so-and-so manufactures the, you know, the, the green widget, and we're going to make a better green widget. Uh, there was a little bit of that. There always will be in a competitive market, and in some levels that's good because your green widget has a feature the old green widget didn't have. But when you do that for a long enough period of time, eventually you start adding features and benefits to a product that nobody asked for. Um, you know, you have a, you know, back in the day when the VCR was the thing. Remember before DVD players? And they started building these VCRs, and the list of features was like, You know, the, the box, you had to turn the box to the other side to see all the features. And people would buy the one that had more features, yet they, they barely knew how to set the time. Uh, there were people that used to joke that you put the black piece of tape over the blinking 12, and all you did with the VCR was stick it in there, shove a tape, and it hit play. And then rewind and then put another tape in and watch that one and return it to the, the video store. But yet they kept adding all these features. Well, that's, that's indicative of a climax stage with, with product life. There's nothing new in that world, and the only thing that stopped the madness of the VCR was the DVD player. Well, then we go from DVD to Blu-ray for high definition, and you put a guy like me in front of the TV, and I go, I don't even see a difference between the two. But some people do. But how far are we going to go with that madness before something completely new, a completely new product that has a, a real new value to the consumer comes along? And the answer is we are well in between uh, innovations anymore. All we're doing is making computers store more information and go faster. All we're doing is making pictures a little bit more clear. All we're doing is making iPods and, and, and similar products hold a little bit more information. The innovation... It's not coming from the big companies anymore. If you think about all the innovation, if you think about your iPhone and go, well, that's the most innovative thing that's ever happened since sliced bread. Really? It's an iPod with a phone. Where's the innovation come from in the iPod and the Android and Windows 7? It comes from the small business person that's developing the applications to run on the platform. If you took away the independently developed apps on the iPhone, you have a GPS, an iPod, and a phone. And that's it. It's, it's all about the small business person. So it's not that there's no innovation in the marketplace today. It's that the large companies have ceased to innovate, and we've come to a climax stage, basically a new dark age. 
And I've got a really cool guest tomorrow that was unschooled uh, that's going to tell you her viewpoint of the Dark Age, and I think you'll, you'll find it interesting. So make sure you tune in tomorrow for that. Uh, but I won't go any deeper there. But just that's kind of one of the things that I looked at. And the guy doesn't say the word permaculture yet in the book. And I'm just reading the book and going, this guy's got to be familiar with permaculture concepts to tie these things together this way. So that got me thinking about doing today's show. The next thing that was in the book, and the last thing I'll talk about before I move on to the, to the core of what we're going to talk about today, is that he divided people up in the world into four classifications. And I'm thinking the guy also, you know, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, you know, we had, he had, you know, the, 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 the working, you know, the, the, uh, the salaried person, the independent person, the business owner and the investor, the cash flow quadrant. Um, but he divides them up quite differently in a more innovative way. He calls them the working man, the salary man, the business man, and the renaissance man. And he talks about, you know, first really the salary man. The salary man is the guy that's paid a salary. He's got a guaranteed income. Now, it may not be a salary. It may be an hourly wage, but he's going to go work for the same place every day for as long as I'll have him there, and he's going to stay there as long as he possibly can. And he's the most, most specialized in knowledge. He has the least amount of general knowledge, the most amount of specialized knowledge. It's paid for at a very high price out of the collegiate system, which I'll leave alone today, but you understand what I'm saying there. It's very, and that it's a very high cost of replacement of knowledge. As technology moves forward, the salary man has to completely learn, like it's when you get into engineers and, 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 and scientists and chemists and things like that, or it has to completely let go of everything he learned and rebuild that knowledge base again. And it's a very expensive, laborious process to stay ahead of the competition in his specialized niche. The working man is what we would think of more as the odd jobber or the independent contractor, uh, which may be very much a self-employed person, but he works projects. And will go periods of time with work and periods of time without work and just accepts that's the way his life is going to be and in many ways has some advantages over the salary man and in other ways doesn't. But he's much more broad in general with his knowledge base, but he's still dependent on somebody else for his income. Then we have the businessman, which many people aspire to be in this world today. And uh, up until I read this book, it's pretty much how I would have classified myself. I have a company. I have a couple other little companies. I'm kind of getting started and off the ground. Uh, I can call myself a businessman. But what he's talking about with the businessman here is the business world I walked away from, where you have to have bondholders and shareholders and financing to even operate because you're operating at a level so far above the world that I'm operating in today, and it's so cutthroat, there's such a cost of operations, and you have to have multiple people in your staff, and you have to have these specialized salary men working for you, and you have to have some of these working men as contractors come in and out of the business, and you have all this expense, so you're leveraged into the business. And that has some advantages and some disadvantages. We won't go to any of those states. I want to give you the, the frame of reference here. And then he said there's the Renaissance man. And the Renaissance man of old was the guy that could play an instrument, paint, new poetry, new philosophy, new science, new history, um, might dabble in business, might do some work here, might take a break there. Um, and I realized that that is actually the philosophy by which I run business today, that I actually ran away from the large business world because I hated it. And by the time I'm done today, you're going to understand why. And if you look at how I run Survival Podcast or how uh, the new AgriTrue is going to be run, or if you look at the way that everything's done fairly and equitably uh, with, with things that I do, where uh, even a product that you pay for is a voluntary product and you get all the information for free and you decide if you want it, uh, you're going to see how incompatible that is with the real world, if you want to call it that, or the businessman world where the businessman is operating at a level to control the salaryman and to a lesser degree to exert some control over the working man. And I think it's really going to change. I know today's show might sound a little dry at first, but I think it's going to change the dynamic of how you look at everything. If you really stick with me through today's episode, by the time you're done with it, you're probably going to want to listen to it again and maybe one more time in the next couple of weeks. And when you walk down the, the, the aisles of a store, uh, from anything from a Walmart to a high-end store, it's going to change the way you see everything. And that's my goal today, to make you change the way you see everything. And in some ways I want you, and not always, because, you know, I, I talk about our grandparents all the time, and I think they were some pretty smart people, but they had some limitations. And one quick story to kind of illustrate that. My father-in-law lost his wife of many years, uh, about, I guess, 12, 14 years ago now. And uh, a few years after that, he met a, a lady uh, about his age, and they're both in their, I guess they're both in their 80s now. 
And uh, she was, I think, in her 70s at the time that this happened. And, you know, they'd gotten cell phones. It was a big deal for them. And it had the basic, it sounded like the old ringer, bang, on her cell phone. And we were sitting around. My son was there. And, you know, how kids are with electronics. They figure any electronic device out like five seconds. And, um, you know, my phone rings, and it's got this, you know, unique ringtone on it. And she goes, oh, what's that? And I said, it's my ringtone. And she goes, oh, really? You can change that? And she, And I went, yeah. And Matt goes, I, I can take your phone and change it and show you all the ones you have and set it to the one you want. And her response was, oh, you better not. As though something bad was going to happen. And in that generation of people and further back, there was some of that. So when I say we need to think more like them, I mean we need to take the, the strong roots that they had and, and not be afraid of new technology at the same time. So make sure you understand I'm not asking you to become an old fogey here, folks. And if you are an old fogey, I'm going to ask you to, to, to hang on to those roots, teach the next generation, and also embrace some of the new things that are out there because innovation is what we're lacking today. It's not that we have too much of it. People think the consumerism problem is because of innovation. It's actually due to the lack thereof. And it'll make perfect sense today. But let's just start off with how our grandparents... This is how I remember my grandfather talking about something when he was thinking about buying it. His first question was, do I need it? Now, if, if the answer was no, and it was always no, all right? Unless it was like, I, you have to get to work, and the car broke down, and I got to buy a new car or fix the old car, and one of those two things has to happen, that would legitimately be a need. Almost everything else that you can possibly think of, the answer to the first question is going to be no. And the reason it's going to be no is I was alive yesterday and I didn't have it. I'm alive today and I don't have it. So by its very nature, I do not need it. All right? But if it's a need, if it is like the first example, then I have to figure out how to make it work. So the first thing I have to do is get through that. And that's what, that's what they did. And that's what I do in my life today. Do I need this? And I always know the first answer is going to be no. doesn't mean I'm not going to buy it. Um, but I'm going to go to my second question, and the second question I've learned from my grandparents. Does anything I have fill the role now? In other words, if I want this functionality or this entertainment or whatever it is, if I want this in my life, is there anything in my life that I own right now that's doing it for me? If I'm thinking about buying a new garden hose, do I really need to get rid of my old garden hose? Right? Um, and the answer might be, I don't know. Maybe the reason I don't like my old garden hose is every time I turn the water on, it sprays everywhere because it doesn't couple up to the hose bib right. Well, do I need a new garden hose? Is it really old? Is it really worn out? Or do I need to take my razor knife, cut the end off, go down to the hardware store, buy a part and a hose clamp and put a new fitting on my existing hose and put it back on? Does anything I have fill this role now? And is that item really, is really beyond its useful life? And if it is not beyond its useful life, can I repair it? And in many, many cases today, the answer of can I repair it is no, and you'll see why that's the case here in just a minute. Um, but that's the next question. And then, how long will it last? You know, my grandfather always told me, people think I'm cheap. I'm not. I'm frugal. And there's a big difference, son, and here's what it is. A cheap person buys the cheapest thing they can get their hands on. A frugal person buys the lowest cost item that's going to last the longest. So I'll pay, a garden hose is a great example of this, I'll pay a lot more money. I'll pay twice as much for a hose if I think it's going to give me 10, 12 years as long as I take care of it uh, versus buying one that I know is going to only last me a couple years. So buy quality. Buy quality, but don't overpay for quality. You understand that just because it costs more doesn't mean it's going to last longer. Just because that warranties today are crap. I'll get into that in a minute. But if it says lifetime warranty on it, forget that. You go try to return it in two years. Unless it's an established company that's built their brand on that type of service. right? Remember Craftsman Tools? I, don't, I haven't actually bought any Craftsman Tools lately. And they, the ones that I have, that I still have, I have from years ago, they don't break. But I, I have broken some things from, with Craftsman's name on it. And I don't know if it's still this way. You guys that are, that are still buying those tools and uh, if you have any experience with it can tell me if it is. But I remember one time I broke a, a socket and I abused it. I had a cheater pipe on it and I was trying to get a, a nut, a old rusty nut off a car and the socket cracked, right? And it was like a 916 socket, one you use all the time. And I showed it to my grandfather and he goes, take it down to Sears, they'll give you a new one. And I'm like, but I, you know, here's what I did. I told him, I thought he was going to yell at me. He goes, ah, doesn't matter. I'll give you a new one. Really? So I went down there, you know, I was like 59 to get a ride with my dad. He goes, I don't know if they'll do this. We walk in, the guy goes, yeah, go get one off the shelf, and that was it. So 
There is that kind of, uh, of, of warranty out there, but most warranties you see on packaging today are meaningless. Because by the time you try to apply for the warranty, the people that are supposed to give it to you aren't even there anymore. Right? I saw that in the cabling industry. People were doing lifetime guarantees on cabling infrastructure. Well, they should. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. But the market reps told me the way we see it is by the time anybody's even thinking about that warranty, they're using that old cable as pull string to pull in new cable because they're upgrading their network anyway. So what the hell is a 25-year warranty in cabling when a guy's leasing the building in the first place, probably going to move his building, et cetera, ad nauseum. And that's how the marketing people think today. That's how the product development people think today. So how long will it last? And how long will it really last? The, the little thing on the, the label that says lifetime warranty doesn't have anything to do with it. You need to pick it up and look at it. You need to look at reviews. How long have people owned it? What problems have they had with it? The next one is, what will it do for me and my family? What is this actually going to do for me? Is it just an entertainment product? Doesn't mean I won't buy it, but if that's all that it is, let's be honest. Let's not let the sales collateral, the marketing collateral, convince us that this thing slices, dices, toasts, uh, boils eggs, and, and it makes my car smell fresh. Right? It doesn't do all of these things. What does it actually do? What role will it fill? I don't care it has 80 benefits. Which ones am I going to use? You know, these were, and these weren't, this wasn't formulaic. It's just how people thought. It was second nature to people. The next one, and this is the, this is the most important subtle difference today uh, from, from yesteryear. Today, we say to ourselves what when we're going to buy a product? How much does it cost? How much does it cost? And we, we do that in dollars. We say, okay, well, this is $40. And uh, if I finance it on a credit card, eh, I'm going to end up paying $60 for it. And we might, if we even go that far, so it's $60. Well, the person that makes $10 an hour needs to save themselves. I have to work six hours at my job to pay for this. The person that makes $20 an hour has to say, I work three hours at my job to pay for this. That's what they ask. How long do I have to work to pay for it? Mortgage on a house, i got to work 30 years to pay for it. Not really, but that's how they thought about it. Is this house worth 30 years of my life? Will I be here for 30 years? Not can I trade up next year to some other fool that pays more for the house than I did. How long must I work to pay for it? That was a question that they always asked. That was a question my grandfather asked me. Even when I would do things like trim the rose bushes, work in the garden, whatever, they'd give me some spending money, you know, and I'd have a couple weeks worth of that and have about 15 bucks saved up, you know, for doing some odd jobs for the neighbors too. And I'd say, I'm going to go buy this down at Center Supply. And he'd say, how long do you have to work to pay for it? Now, what? It's three bucks. Well, how many hours did you work for that three dollars? It was an interesting thing. It made me think about it. And then the last question, and this is the question I just think America has stopped asking themselves when they're going to buy something today. If I don't buy it, what difference does it really make? I mean, if, if it's the car we started out with and I don't buy it and I can't go to work tomorrow, it makes a big flipping difference. Right? It makes a big flipping difference. Because I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to earn my money. I'm not going to put food on the table. It matters. If I don't buy that new thingamabob, uh, just because a neighbor bought one, and he's got one and I don't, does it really matter in my life? And it, these are questions you have to answer for yourself. And I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm not anti-marketplace. I'm not anti-competition. I'm not trying to talk you to becoming an independent socialist. For God, love the love of God, you know better than that. I'm a libertarian. I think anything you really want to buy, if you have the money and you want it, and you go out and buy it, great. I'm just saying that maybe we should ask a few questions before we make that decision. And that if we look back to the questions our grandparents asked and our great-grandparents asked, and we don't couple that with this fear of evolution like my, my father-in-law's girlfriend who didn't want the ringtone changed and she didn't know why, but oh, you better not. And there was legitimate fear in her voice. We don't, we, we take the good and we leave that fear of evolution back, then we have a lot more power today than they did then. And we have a lot more options today than we did then. But options for options sake, you know, they lead us down a pit. So here's the part that I promised you today. This is, I think, going to be eye-opening for you. When I put together a product as a small business person, I put it together around, I want to sell what people want uh, versus what they need. I want to make sure I'm selling to the want, to the desire. Um, I put it around a golden trifecta of marketing, and I find it very much a market-serving philosophy to have. I want to know, uh, is this product going to... Uh, yield a profit to my customer? 
If I can sell a customer a product for $50 and they will profit $100 this year on it, they would be foolish not to buy it and it makes sense for them. Will it, will it educate them and thereby be in some way profit yielding to them? Uh, or, so that's, that's one. The next thing is I want to know, uh, or can the product be life changing for them? Will it change the way they view life and make their life better going down the road? And if I can bring uh, either profit-yielding or life-changing to a person, I know that I'm going to be bringing them real value. And the last one in that trifecta is entertaining. If I can en legitimately entertain people, they're going to have a certain amount of value there. Uh, some people will choose to take another type of entertainment. That's fine. But it's entertainment, profit-yield, life-change. Those are the, the cores that I build uh, business on. And... If I can do that, I know that I can build a solid relationship with my customer and that I'm going to have a lifelong relationship with my customer because people want and like and enjoy those things. And if I can make their life better in some way, great. You would think that that would be a great formula for mega businesses to operate under, but it's not. Now, if a product like that falls into their lap, they'll, they'll run with it, uh, but they're also going to put it into their format. So I'm going to tell you what questions are asked by big business people when they look at marketing a product or service. The first and foremost is, can we create a fad or cult following around it? You know, if we can do that, we can sell it to people just for stupid reasons and stupid prices. If we can make everybody want it or some small segment of society want it and value it above everything else, then, then that's perfect. And it doesn't matter if it's a piece of crap. As long as I can create a cult following around it, then I can sell the hell out of it, right? Can I create the next pet rock? It's a stupid freaking rock with a couple eyeballs on it, right? Back in the 70s, guy sold a million dollars worth of freaking rocks. Why? Because it, it had a fad, you know? Sea monkeys, half the time they don't even work, right? These are examples of old school uh, concepts of this, but, you know, is, is your iPod or iPhone really better than the Android phone, you know? But it, there's a certain value to the brand alone, And if you can create multiple camps and everybody can take one of them, so much the better. Peace at war with business fighting business. The next one is, what existing market share can we capture with it? Almost no company today wants to create a new market. Um, my goal when I started the Survival Podcast was actually to create a market. There was no survival, preparedness, homestead, uh, podcast, audio show, radio show, anything like that in existence in 2008 when I did this. There just wasn't. And anybody that will be honest about it will tell you the same thing. There were a couple people that threw up a podcast or two. They do like one in March, one in June, and one in September and quit and hadn't done them for a year. That was the closest thing to it. It's a big part of why I did it. I wanted a show like this, and I couldn't find one. So I went out and I created a market. And today, and I'm not saying anything negative about it, you know, I'm about to cut a deal uh, with the Prepper Podcast Network to syndicate my content in their network. Uh, and I love what John and, and Doc are doing over there. I think it's great. But I created this space. And it's a very risky thing to do because the, the odds of failure are very, very high when you create a market. And I'm not saying this to you know toot my own horn here. I'm saying this to illustrate for you what it's like when you go into dark waters alone. There's nobody there to already capture. So there was no market share in people that listened to preparedness-style podcasting or homestead-style podcasting. It didn't exist. And we went and created a business, a big business, a multinational business, will very seldom take a risk like that. And if they do, they'll put the toe in the water very, very gently. What they prefer to do is go, okay, we're going to make a product to sell to golfers. And golfers are per currently buying this product. This product that we're going to build is a lot like the existing product, and we know what the market share of that product is. We're going to market our product and make it do something just a little bit different And we believe that we can capture in the first year 20% of that existing market share so we know that we can spend X dollars of innovation, development, product manufacturing, and distribution in return for that market share. And if we fail by 50%, we're still going to break even if we only get 10% of that market. Even 10% will establish us in the market. Therefore, this is a business decision we can make, and we're going to go capture that market share. There's nothing at all innovative or moving forward about that we're in a climax stage of business. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Do you understand that when these new products come out, that very discussion probably took four weeks, even though it was just down to that in a nutshell, in a bunch of boardrooms and a bunch of guys in suits that don't give a shit about you and they don't care about your experience. They do care a little bit about it, but they really don't. And I'll get to that in a second. The next one is, can we build a market with this new product to sell subsequent products too? In other words, can we sell the next generation to it? Can we go from iPod to iPhone to iPhone 2 to iPhone 3 to 3G to 4 to 5? Can we do that progression? Can we upgrade the product and charge for the upgrade even though the old product still works? Or can we design the old product to fail, which I'll get to in a second? But can we create a market to sell other collateral product too? Whether it's an upgrade or a new piece of garbage to sell down into our market. If we get people hooked on testing cable, can we get people hooked on testing patch cords? Alright? I mean, this, I'm telling you, I've worked for companies in these industries. This is how marketing development goes. This is what people think. If we do this, we know that it will only last for X factor in time before, if it's successful, competitors will come in and start to innovate around our product and take the product forward with more features and benefits that aren't really necessary. So we have to be prepared before we start the first product. We have to know what the second product is going to be, what it's going to look like, what we're going to sell it for, and how we're going to create the transition. So by the time all of the piranha catch up to us from the competing companies, we're already taking the market in a new direction. But it's still not innovative. It's still just a faster processor or a bigger screen. And if they're thinking the way that I'm telling you, and they are, trust me, then you could have had the bigger screen today. You could have had the faster processor today. You could have had the, you know, 90% of what they'll add is something they could have put in the first generation that they held back so there could be a second generation. 10% of it will come with furthering of technology. But 90% is already in the bill of goods, bill of sale for generation 2, generation 3, generation 4 of the product when they put the first product out. You see how you're being manipulated with this. The next one is, is it consumable or designed to fail? And this ties right back into the last one. There's, there's two types of products that a business loves to sell and build a market with. One is a consumable product, a vitamin pill. You take it, you eat it, you need it more next month, you buy it again. So you have to keep replacing it. They don't like to build a product that lasts a long time. You buy it once and you're good to go. They like to sell food. Biggest industry in the world, uh, biggest industries in the world are energy and food. You put gas in your car this week, you're probably going to put gas in your car next week. You put food in your body this week, you're probably going to put food in your body next week. Why do you think those two industries are so corrupt and have so much lobbying force in government? Pharmaceuticals and drugs. Right? Those are optimal consumable products. That's a perfect example of a consumable. But there's other consumables, bottled water. God forbid we would drink the water that came out of our faucet. And I know there's things in there you want out. Buy a Berkey. Then you can, you know, buy a set of filters once every five years. And you have great water right out of your faucet because the stuff in the bottle came out of somebody's faucet. Right? Most of these bottled water companies, folks, they don't come from springs and all these pictures of Brooks. They, they, they're, you know, one of the biggest water bottling companies in the world is in Houston. They use the same water that comes out of Houston tap. They just run it through a filter. They put it in a plastic bottle and they sell you a half a cent's worth of water and a half a cent manufactured cost of a plastic bottle for 89 cents. And you buy it. Because it's consumable, it's a good business model. And they can create a fat on it. And they can put all kinds of colorful marketing into the label and in the messaging and everything else. And even though it's exactly the same as the competitor's bottle of water, they know that one company is going to carve out one cult niche following and the other is going to carve out another. And this is exactly how these decisions are made. The next one, or the next part of that is, can we design it to fail? Do you understand that products are designed to fail today? Um, if it has a two-year warranty, it's probably designed to have a two-and-a-half to three-year life cycle. And if we design it so that it can't be repaired, there's no user-serviceable parts on the inside, all we need is a single component to have a mean time between failures that just exceeds the warranty or just exceeds the person's desire to return it. How many of you have ever legitimately returned an item that was over two years old? Most people, after an item's two years old, I was going to buy a new one anyway. 
Oh, I mean, even if there's technically a warranty on it, where's the paperwork? I mean, some people are religious about this. They save their paperwork, you know. They they fill out the warranty card. They do all that. But most consumers, if something lasts long enough, uh, they don't even bother with it. So a company designs it to fail, so you'll go back and buy another one. Again, I want you to understand that it's not just that this stuff happens. It's that before the product exists, when it's still on a spec sheet and it's in a proposal stage, these are the questions that are being asked. The next one, how cheaply can we make it? You know, I want to know what we can sell it for, but more importantly than, than what we can sell it for, how cheaply can I manufacture this? Um, will the Chinese make it for us? Can I have this fabricated in India? Um, can I have this part made in China, this part made in India, assemble it in the U.S. and market it as a U.S. product, even though 90% of the labor is done offshore? There's no hiding this stuff. Like, this is not subversive. If you sat in at any major corporate marketing product development board meeting, the, the, the guy, people ask these questions outright. Can we market this as an American product but do 90% of the work overseas and cut costs? Right? Um, what can we do? Okay, you have that one component in there. Why? And the engineer says, because it's the best component we can get at the best price in the industry today. And the guy goes, is that over-engineering it? And the engineer, who's trying to build the best product he can, says, what do you mean? Well, what's the life cycle of this product? The engineer goes, it can last forever. And he goes, no, 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 I don't want to talk to you anymore. I want to talk to the marketing guy. What's the life cycle of this product? And the marketing guy says, oh, the life cycle on this product's about two years. And the guy goes, okay, I don't want any components in this product that are going to last longer than three. I want a three-year MTBF built product. MTBF, mean time between failures. Uh, when you buy high-end hardware, software, things like that, a carrier class stuff that does need to last, that's going into uh, a phone uh, co-location facility, uh, you'll, you'll get on a spec sheet what the mean time between failures is. Any component that you put into any product that's electronic in nature, uh, generally from the manufacturer, you can get mean time between failures. The longer those mean time between failures, the more expensive and the better built the product is. And they're looking for low MTBF rates, low cost product, so that the product is, is designed to fail. And this is designed in from the beginning, folks. I'm, I'm telling you, there's nothing here I'm making up. There's nothing here I haven't seen firsthand. This is how products are developed today. Next on our list, so we keep moving here, um, can we outsource most of the work? That's, that's always something people want to do. And this is not just uh, doing China, India, Philippines, whatever. Uh, actually, most manufacturing companies today don't want to manufacture They want to, they want the product, they want to own the product, they want to have a patent on the product, they want to have rights to the product, they want to sell the product, they want to put the product for distribution, they want somebody else to do all the crap and the work of manufacturing it, and when somebody cuts their finger off, they want them to pay for it. So the outsource component of it is not just about overseas. It doesn't matter if you're outsourcing to a company in Atlanta, Georgia, or Sheboygan, Illinois. Can I get the, the, the messy part of the job, uh, the risky part of the job, the part where the supplies might not come in on time and there's going to be a loss due to a penalty? Can I, out, can I defer the risk? Can I defer the danger? Can I defer the health insurance costs? Can I defer as much as possible and just get the product at a fixed price so I know what my sell price and my margin is? So can I outsource most of the work? Um, will it last long enough to avoid returns? I told you they don't really care about your user experience. They do. Yeah, most products, if they'll last a year, most people won't bother returning them. Even if they could. They just won't. Uh, most products that last a year, the person will actually blame themselves for breaking it, like I did with the uh, socket, which actually probably was my fault because it was probably 25 years old when I did that. But most people, once the product goes a year, it's time for a new one in this society, especially in the world of consumable goods uh, or the world of consumer-grade goods. Uh, so that's, that's a big thing. Is if, if long as I can, I can build it good enough that you're not going to be shoving them back at me, they're not going to be coming back the day after they go out, then that's good enough. The next one, can we sell it for less than our competition? So, it, again, remember the scenario. We're going to go out, we're going to build this widget that sells the golfers that actually already exists. We're going to make it shinier or rounder or sharper or faster or whatever it is or a different color, and we're going to claim it to be this new innovative thing, but it's really the one that already exists. Well, if I can go out and do all that and then sell for a price point under my competition and still be profitable, well, that's a great business decision for me in the modern marketing world. That's what they want to sell you, folks. And then if the answer is no, it doesn't shit can the idea, then the next question is, or can we justify a premium at little to no internal cost? 
Can we do something with this product that makes it worth more in the eyes of the consumer, even if we could sell it for the same price and be profitable, or even go a little bit under? What I'm really looking for is how can we do absolutely nothing to improve quality but make the consumer believe that there's an advantage so they will pay us 10% more than our competition and we're manufacturing at the same price as our competition and therefore we're making a greater we're doubling our competition's profit because they're on a 10% margin we're on a 20 and actually the margin they're looking for folks is going to be somewhere between 60 and 120% depending on the specific industry that they're in so that if the competition's at 60 can I get to an 80% margin make the consumer think they're buying more and actually do nothing to earn it other than do a better job with my marketing team convincing you that I did. Now, that was like a whirlwind. But again, I want to reiterate here as I'm done with those things. That is the absolute, 100% God's honest, hand up to, to God, truth. And I know these things for a fact because I've worked with companies that think this way. I've sat in on discussion groups and product development groups and board meetings where people have said these exact words and worse. And I want you to take that in and maybe you have to listen to that again. And maybe you have to share that with your kid even though I did use one four-letter word in it because it's the truth and it's the way these conversations go. But maybe you guys have to listen to it three or four times and then take a walk through an aisle at a department store. And see if it changes everything about the way you look at everything that you're looking at. And, I mean, this would all be useless today if I didn't tell you how to avoid the consumer's trap and still have fun and cool stuff, right? I, I own GPSs, right? They, they, they've been through the same process. But some of them are pretty daggone good. All the stuff that we have out there and all the options that we have out there aren't bad in of themselves. They're bad because we abuse them. We're like, we're like crack addicts and we're just going from rock to rock burning one, you know, trying to stay high on this feeling because we're disconnected from what's real in our lives. So I have three things that you can do that will keep you 90% out of the consumerist trap, and you're still going to make your own decisions, and you're not going to not buy something because Jack said it's a dumb waste of your money. You're going to make your own decisions here. Number one, you should already know, knowing me. Avoid debt. If you take away the credit cards, and you have to buy the gizmo with the money you earned yesterday and spend that money today, and if you don't have enough money, you have to work for several more days and drive home that question of how long do I have to work for it, You're going to make smarter spending decisions. We no longer buy things with the mentality of how long do I have to work to pay for it, what's on my monthly payment on it. So if we take away debt, 90% of the issue will just dry up and blow away. Number two, if it's a major purchase, and it's up to you to determine what that is, I would say if it's over $100, bucks, definitely. And uh, it's not something like, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Spierko, we need to fix this part of your truck, and if we don't do it, your truck won't run anymore. If it's not that much of a need, if it's something that I won't, I won't die without in the next 48 hours, have a 48-hour waiting period before you make major purchases. Convince yourself, yes, I want, I want product XYZ because it slices, it dices, it does this and that. And you look at it, look at the money, and say to yourself, do I really want to buy it? And when you say yes, go home. And if it's a Wednesday on Friday afternoon, say to yourself, do I want to go back to the store and buy it? Now, this is not depriving yourself of anything, because if you really want it, what will you do? You'll go back and buy it. If on Friday you go, eh, I don't really know, hey, you know what? Ask yourself again on Monday. What you'll find is in many instances, the longer the time between where you were convinced you needed it, And when you're actually going to spend the money, the less likely you will be to buy it. Now, that's not me, you know, uh, you know, peeing in your Wheaties. That's not some, you know, old fogey telling you, ah, oh, save your money, boy. That is your own mentality and your own lifestyle going, do I really want and need this thing in my life? And am I willing to trade the X amount of hours, days, months, weeks, or years I worked for this money in return for this item? And I think what you'll find is you'll start looking for things that really bring entertainment value to your life, uh, really bring profit-yielding things to your life, uh, and really bring educational value to your life. That's what you're going to start doing. You're going to want to know more, do more, be more. You're going to want to live more like a renaissance man. And that's what you'll start investing in. 
And you'll realize, you know, I need things that produce for me. I need things that provide me energy and food and shelter and security, right? I need to ensure more accurately, as we've been saying lately, assure my future. And assure my future in a way that lets me live under my own decisions and choices. And upgrading my iPhone is probably not going to do that. Folks, I walk the walk. I have an iPhone 3G, 16 gig. And some of you out there have seen it. And if you've seen this and you're hearing me today, I want you to comment in today's show notes and say, Jack speaks the truth. Almost a year ago, I got out of my truck and I had my phone in my lap. It face-planted into the macadam and it cracked the screen. And I have an iPhone with a shattered screen. It still works. I can still see it. It still functions. It does everything that I need it to do. When I watch a video on it, it's a little bit annoying. I put the main side of the crack to the bottom side of the phone, and I watch videos, and I make phone calls with it. I have not replaced my phone in a year, even with a cracked screen. Can I afford a new iPhone? You bet your ass I can afford a new iPhone, folks. Of course I can. But why am I not replacing it? Because it really isn't going to make a difference. I, people look at it and go, I can't believe you did. I don't care what you think about my phone. My phone is designed so I can talk to business contacts, friends, and family and get information and use the apps on my phone that make my life better every day. As long as this phone does that, it's good enough. Now, at some point, I may replace it. The cracked screen makes it more susceptible to moisture damage and things like that. And there is going to be a point in time where I'm going to go ahead and, and get a new phone. But I didn't just run out and do it. Well, I'm not saying that you should do the same thing. I'm saying that I put the thing through that, you know, you got to buy a new one. They won't replace it. It's not covered by, by the insurance because of the way that it happens. So if I go buy a new one, it's, you know, three to five hundred dollars. Would I rather have three to five hundred dollars in my pocket in an iPhone with a cracked face or have an iPhone without a cracked face and, and, and not have my three to five hundred dollars? I'm keeping the three to five hundred dollars for as long as I can. I'm going to do as much with it as I can before I'm willing to part with it. And maybe when they come out with the iPhone 5, I'll go in and extend my existing contract and get one for ninety-nine dollars. Who knows? Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll carry this thing for four more years. I don't know. But right now, I know that it works. This is what I'm trying to say. And that forty-eight hour waiting period will make you more likely to make decisions like that. Next one: Ask those questions our grandparents did. Real quick, going back to them: Do I need it? Does anything I have fill the role now? How long is it going to last? What will it do for me and my family? How long must I work to pay for it? If I don't buy it, what difference will it really make? So I asked those questions about the iPhone. And the answer was, do I need a new one? No. Does anything I have fill the role now? Yes. How long will it last? I don't flip and know. Uh, what will it do for me and my family? Nothing that the current one doesn't. How long must I work to pay for it? I don't know, a week? Something like that. If I don't buy it, what difference will it really make? None. I didn't need a 48-hour waiting period. Because those were the answers to the questions. It's amazing what happens when we ask the questions. So ask those questions that our grandparents did. And I really can't, even though I'm not done with the book yet, I can't recommend this book enough to you guys. I'm reading it on my Kindle. I think I paid 9 bucks for it. Um, Early Retirement Extreme. Uh, I can't remember the author's name. Let me look it up real quick for you here. His name is Jacob Lund, and I, I really like uh, the book. So if you're looking for something that I think would be uh, entertaining, uh, profit-yielding, and possibly life-changing, that might be nine bucks worth spending. But ask yourself the questions before you spend the nine bucks, folks. It won't hurt my feelings none. I'll put a link to Amazon, but if you buy it, I'm going to make a nickel. So, um, you know, I, I'm just telling you that... What I've learned in my life going forward, uh, since I've downsized my life, since I walked away from that corporate world, is I'm a hell of a lot happier. You know, one of my people that I really admire what he's done online and built his business and everything is Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, but I had Gary on the show. If you guys remember, I went out of my way to bring Gary on the show, and he said something I've never heard him say anywhere else. And I was really kind of honored to hear him admit it here on my show. He said, can I say that I'm happier now than at any point in my life? And he said, I can't. Uh, I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm really not. That was a quote. That's how he said it. I can't. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm really not. That's pretty, pretty assertive that I'm not happy now compared to how I've been happy at other points in my life. And I look at Gary and I think maybe you would be better off if you let somebody else run VaynerMedia since it is a cash cow for you now. And went back to just doing wine podcasts and selling wine in your wine store and talking to small entrepreneurs a couple times a week about how they can become what you were and stay at that level. And I can't make that decision for him. 
And maybe he will actually be much happier when he achieves his dream of owning the New York Jets or uh, becoming a partial team owner someday. And maybe he has to build that huge, and maybe that's what it is for him. But I can tell you that when you say, I'm really not, I'm really not, I'm really not, it's telling you there's something wrong in what you're doing now. And I'll ask you today, are you happier now than you were at any time in your life? And if you answer that with, I'm really not, I'm really not, I'm really not, and at the same time, if I ask you, do you have more stuff now than you ever had in your life? And you answer that with, uh-huh, yeah, I do. Maybe stuff's not the solution. Maybe getting rid of some of the stuff and the expense of the stuff and the, and the clutter of the stuff is the solution. Maybe downsizing your life is the solution. Maybe stepping back is the solution. Don't do it overnight. Don't go home and go, honey, I know I make 180 grand as an engineer at Lockheed, but uh, Jackson had downsized my life, so I tendered my resignation today. That's going to be a poor quality conversation. It's not going to improve the quality of your life. But maybe it's, maybe it's I'm burned out on this. Maybe it's I want a more of a renaissance factor in my life. Maybe I want to live a little bit more like Da Vinci or Jefferson, right? Uh, two different people from two totally different words, but, but both people I would consider renaissance men. Maybe I want to live a little more like that. Maybe, but because I've already attached myself to some degree, maybe I now need to pay the price of extraction. And what is that price and how do I plan for it? What do I do and how do I make it happen? That's, that's what I'm really suggesting. And how much of that you do is your choice. Maybe you're going to say to me, Jack, I want every gadget, gizmo, whoop-de-doo, upside down trick thing I can find out there and I make lots of money and I work hard for it and damn it, I'm going to buy it and that's what I want. If that's what you want, fine. But I think the majority of people that listen to this show, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. Uh, I said when I did my show about business uh, about a week ago, I knew my audience. And the things I knew about you were you wanted something more in your life and you weren't sure what it was. And, and maybe now you're on a path to what it is. And you've answered that question for yourself. But the show helped you find what it was. And the community helped you find what it was. And other people in other communities like this have helped you figure out what it was or leading you down the path to find that. You wanted to know what you could do. Uh, you wanted to know how you could live a better life. You wanted to know how you could make your life and your family's life and the lives of people around you better. And you wanted to know if everything went to hell, how could you keep it? How could you keep from losing it? Right? How could you solidify your life in a way to prevent loss during a catastrophe? And some other things. And I actually had some people email me and go, dude, do you like have listening devices in my house or what? Because I think I actually freaked some people out when I went deep into that. So I won't redo it today. Um, but if you're that kind of person, then you probably don't really want a life where you're going to fill it up with a bunch of stuff. You want a life where you're going to fill it up with a bunch of quality and knowledge and education and, and meaningfulness and interaction. And if you do, tune in tomorrow. Because this gal that I interviewed already that I'm going to be putting on the air tomorrow that was unschooled, I think can go a long way toward helping you reconnect with that. And whenever you're thinking about making a purchasing decision... I just want you to ask yourself one question. Is this decision based on consumerism or common sense? Then go through the rest of the stuff we talked about today. And please do this for me, especially those of you with kids out there. Let them hear my one four-letter word. It's probably not as damaging to their psyche or their morality, okay, um, as uh, an episode of Two and a Half Men or Friends or something like that on regular TV all the time. Have them listen to this episode, specifically the part where I explain how decisions are made about building, making, and marketing products. Maybe listen to it twice with them, explain it to them, have a discussion with them, and take a walk through a department store. And in the, the they say, from the mouths of babes come the greatest truths or something to that effect. And your child may teach you in this one. Your child may snap to this quicker than you because he's been programmed for less than a period of time. He may be more susceptible to the initial marketing, but he's probably more likely to be uh, receptive to his own deprogramming by his own decision or her own decision. So learn from your kids, parents. They have a lot to teach us if we'll open our ears once in a while and listen. And with that, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a bear.
Yeah.